Welcome to the 24 Stories podcast that aims to educate, inspire and help build brands. I'm your host, Stephen Ryan, founder of 24 Stories, and I'll be joined each week by guests from a variety of industries here to tell you how they built their brands. Welcome to episode 14 of the 24 Stories podcast. This week I'm joined by somebody I'm very familiar from my days in tourism, but in recent years... I've seen her shoot to fame with Cork Chamber. I'm delighted to have the president of Cork Chamber and the current CEO of Cognate Health, Paula Cogan. Welcome to 24 Stories. Thank you so much. Great to catch up with you today. Yeah, it's been a while with all the lockdowns and everything. It's been a, a few years since we've seen each other and a lot has changed since then. It has done for both of us. For both of us, yeah, without a doubt. <laughs> As I said at the start, Paula, I'm familiar with you from hospitality, tourism. We were on a lot of committees together over the years. We were a lot of kind of promoting Cork. How did that happen? How did you get into that? Long story, but I suppose I'll give you the shortened version. So mm. I was in university, studied archaeology and history, was my yeah. primary degree, and loved it and uh, decided afterwards that I would like to continue in something in that area. And unfortunately, I suppose at the time, you either had to go into kind of the academic route yeah. or then from an archaeology perspective, you could go out and do excavating. So while I did a little bit of that and really enjoyed it, um, really as a career, you'd want to have uh, good knees because arthritis yeah, sets in at Ireland yeah, very yeah. quickly, as you can imagine, with, with, cold the, and damp with weather. our weather. Yeah. Um, so I went back and did a postgraduate diploma in marketing management in UCC um, and from there got a placement, a work placement working with Cork County Council. And at the time oh. they were developing two heritage projects. One was the Gunpowder Mills in Ballancolleg and yeah. one was the Cove Heritage Centre. And they offered me a job afterwards working at the Gunpowder Mills Heritage Centre. That's where it all started. And back then, I'd say that was kind of the start of maybe our councils taking tourism serious, especially in Cork. Maybe Kerry would have always taken it very serious, but Cork kind of dismissed tourism a small bit. Didn't sure, it? but it was. I think it's the, there was a difficulty as well in that it wasn't part of the mandate of the local authority to really look after tourism yeah. at that stage. I mean, yeah. we, we had kind of a different structure, I suppose, the, the old days of pre-fall to Ireland um, so to be fair, Cork County Council were really taking mm. the initiative, I yeah. would suggest at that stage. But they knew that they had to start investing um, in heritage because, again, it was from a tourism promotion perspective, it's very important. But also there's huge cost associated with it. So you nice. didn't have a lot of private operators at that mm. stage who were willing to take that on. I mean, you did have an element of the Heritage Centre and the Irish Distillers uh, investing in Middleton at that stage. And you had the Cork City Jail, which, again, was a private enterprise. Yeah to be fair to them and the Keneally family involved in that as well. But yeah, it was it was a big undertaking for um, Cork County Council. It was definitely a learning curve for me, um, particularly when you're managing a team of nine people as well and learning the politics, I suppose, of uh, tourism, as we all yeah, know. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot involved in that and also uh, working within a local authority structure as well. So really enjoyed it. It was uh, the, the start of my tourism career. And did you kind of focus on local tourists then? Was it kind of because it was the council was the I suppose the first protocol to to target the locals come in and use it as a local amenity or or how very much so I suppose from um, a local authority perspective they knew that they it had a tourism potential mm. but I suppose really the initial idea is that it was going to be a civic centre for people who were living in Balancholic. Um I suppose that there are those people internationally who have a huge interest in military history mm. um, and as you know that became a big concept for yeah. Cork from a tourism perspective in the last number of years but we were probably one of the first that really started to attract military history tourists. So there was intrigue associated with that too, I would suggest. Um, so people from all aspects of life were actually coming to it. And then slowly but surely, we started to see UK, French, German tourists coming through as well, probably in the second and third year 
um, of the opening. But um, certainly it was a lot of local interest at the start. So you developed an interest in tourism out of that. Um, was it a case that you were poached or did you kind of say, I want to try something else after? I think I wanted to try something else. I mean, it was it was a really interesting project mm. uh, to be involved in. But I suppose for me, um, I felt there was something else in tourism as well at yeah. that stage. And um, I happened to be on a tourism committee, speaking of tourism committees, with the general manager of what was Drury's Hotel um, at that stage. And um, he asked me, would I be interested in coming into the hospitality industry, into hotels? So I said, absolutely no way, no interest whatsoever yeah. in going into hotels. So he asked me to come for an interview. And I met the the director of sales and marketing for the company at that stage. And I felt I did a really bad interview, you know, yeah. when you kind of come out going, mm, no, yeah. in hindsight now, when I think of it, exactly the questions I would have been asking somebody, but, you know, around bedroom capacities and who do you, who the top companies in Cork that might use the hotel mm-hmm. and stuff. And I, you know, I wouldn't have had, I had some insight to that, but not a, a near enough, I felt. Um, so I discounted it and I got a call within a couple of days to say I've been offered the job. Wow. So that was my start in the hospitality hotel industry side of tourism then. And that was the big hotel in Cork at the time as it well. Was. Like Jory's was the famous hotel. This was before Clayton or any of those or, yes. you know, the, you know, Silver Springs would have been there and, and, and the Rochestone wasn't developed properly no. either yet. So really you had Jury's, you had the Imperial, the Metropole and the Silver Springs. They were the biggies in that yeah. stage and the Vienna Woods yeah. uh, would have been um, there as well. Um, so yeah, it was an interesting time certainly to be involved in hotels and um, Jury's was you know, it was a big hotel, yeah. um, even in comparison to, I suppose, nowadays, you know, uh, when I think back, we would have had probably three different weddings going on on a Friday, Whoa. Saturday not, yeah. and just, you know, managing all of that large conferences. Um, it was a place as well that hosted most of the very large dinners that yeah. would happen in yeah. the city as well. So, yeah, very exciting. Never a dull moment um, in, in hospitality, as you know, and particularly in hotels, you'd go in in the morning and you think, OK, this is my plan for the day. And within an hour, probably that would have all changed. And when you're in a role like that, Paula, is it a case of our weekends are going to be busy? So do I focus on the midweek? I'm kind of thinking, is that the way it is with hotels? It, it changes. I yeah. mean, I suppose, um, again, um, you know, when you think back 25 years ago in Cork, actually Cork as a weekend destination wouldn't have been have as well known. Okay. Um, we didn't have the same airline access, air routes um, coming in. So you didn't have that. You couldn't kind of... Uh, depend on the international traveller mm. coming in. And then domestic travel, lots of people, you know, generally families didn't go away to yeah. hotels in yeah. those days. You know, they were either self-catering or camping or something like that Mobile as well. homes or B&Bs or somewhere like that. Yeah, yeah, so it was a very different mix of business, I would say, as to, you know, um, in, in the last number of years um, for the, those, the demographic that would stay in a hotel. So you were, you were being very focused. So mm. it was very important, again, that... Um, you won that wedding or you won that big event or a conference because they really made it for you. Mm. Um, and, and still to this day, I'm sure some of my hotel colleagues in Cork will agree. I mean, if you come into a month and you know we have a couple of conferences on the books, that's good. That's your base business. And, you know, you're going to have the bedrooms humming. You're going to have the meeting rooms busy. You know, there's going to be ancillary spend in a bar and a restaurant. Mm. 
So once you had that in and weddings at the weekend, then you'd build around that uh, and make sure that you you would have the other type of business as well that you need. But we did everything from, I mean, um, you know, every UCC ball was was in juries yeah. in those days because the proximity yeah. to the campus. And the Debs and, and the grads were there as well. That. My own was there anyway, exactly. I remember it. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, jazz festival weekends. I mean, they were huge. And yeah, so it was it was it was a very exciting place to be. And I suppose, again, for me, it, it really taught me. Um, how important that kind of learning from others is. I, I, I think, oh, you know, I was speaking to somebody recently and I think people forget that um, hospitality and hotels particularly were always an apprenticeship model. And I really liked that about hotels. There was kind of that, you know, I suppose pride in seeing people develop. And at that stage in juries, um, Quark was really kind of the the stable um, for the next general managers. So you generally knew if somebody was coming to Quark as a, a deputy general manager, that they were only going to be probably there for six or eight months and they would be just take their lead and their jump into a general manager role. So at that stage within juries, you had the juries ins concept developing. Yeah. So you had, you know, it went from a hotel group with four hotels to 36, 38 Whoa. hotels. Across the UK mainly, wasn't it? UK yeah. and, and, and throughout Ireland as well. So you really had, as I say, that stable of uh, young managers coming through. Um, and I always thought it was interesting. You could see uh he's going to make it or she's yeah. going to make it they're not <laughs> as well <laughs> just how they interacted with staff and how they yeah. interacted with customers and that too so you know that was very that was a very enjoyable time as well and thankfully it kind of stands to me nowadays because uh, particularly pre-COVID you know if you're going away for a weekend somewhere I'd be like hmm what general manager do I know that yeah. I worked with in the past there that I could get a, a friends and family rate from but yeah and there was a great social life associated with course, yeah. hospitality and hotels as well in those days and those conferences that came in, would you kind of have to stay around in the evenings if they had a dinner dance or something like that, kind of make sure that they were OK? And Very much so. I mean, a lot of my role was was not only winning the business, but then being that person on the ground and the meeting and greeting and, and being there and being available as well. When I think back on it, um, we were having a conversation just before we started about broadband and stuff. I mean, hotels didn't even know what Internet was. Yeah, it didn't really exist. Yeah. Um, we had... Um, in our general manager's back office, um, pokey office in, in, in the hotel, um, there was this computer and it sat there and um, every so often, you know, somebody would come in and, and use it and, and et cetera. And it actually took a long time before I asked the question, what was it? But actually it was um, one of our, our large clients at that stage was Apple. Oh. So it was Apple employees who were coming in and working off probably one of the first yeah. IMAX, Max, yeah, yeah. and logging on to what was email in those yeah. days. But again, they hadn't that service. They couldn't do that anywhere else. Probably some sort of internet that they had. Exactly. Yeah, but it yeah. was that dial up. Yeah. Remember the dial yeah. up tone? So, you know, the first conferences I remember being involved in that asked about, you know, uh, Wi-Fi or internet connectivity so that they could video conference. I mean, we had no idea what yeah. what was coming our way. And I suppose for a lot of hotels as well, the investment associated with at that stage in technology, you know, trying to get um, internet into bedrooms, all of that kind of good stuff. So it was it was a really um, exciting time to be involved. And I suppose juries was, you know, the hospitality um, employer in those days um, as well. So you had great opportunities within the organization as well to to develop if you wanted to develop your career within within juries. It was probably a time there was a lot of foreign direct investment coming into Ireland as well. So there would be a lot of corporates that she would chase, especially down Ring a Skiddy in places like that. Oh, hugely. I mean, there there was um, lots and lots of companies coming in. And I suppose in, in those days as well, um, pre 
uh, an organization setting up, you'd have a lot of, of travel associated with that. So, for instance, 18 months before um, a company would, uh, particularly foreign direct investment company would come in, they'd have a team on the ground of, you know, 12, 14 people. Uh, and generally they stayed in hotels mm. um, because you didn't have the apartment concept in, in Cork in the city at that stage. Um, so they'd be part of the furniture. They would kind of, everybody knew them, yeah, you know, everybody knew what breakfast they wanted or what drink they liked. They were part of the family. I mean, I remember some of the, the regular guests, the regular stairs coming to our Christmas party, you know, and that was really exciting. And then you kind of got an insight into what the company was doing. Um, you know, you start to see those trends of pharmaceuticals coming in, the tech sector then coming in mm. after that as well. Um, you had a lot of, of uh, professors, lecturers traveling as well on a regular yeah. basis too. So it's a, it was actually a really eclectic mix of people staying in the hotel at any given time. And that's probably what hotel, especially kind of a, a four-star hotel like Jory's at the time, would have brought a mix of, of, of everyone. It would have done. I mean, again, we were fortunate enough to, I suppose, um, thankfully with, with our the Opera House and the Everyman attracting quite a lot of concerts, um, you know, high-profile comedians, the times of the jazz festival, etc. as well. You know, we did have some high-profile guests who stayed with us too. And when the when juries, the old juries in the Western Road closed in um, 2006, my history side of me came out and there was an incredible uh, array of memorabilia, yeah. pictures of the general managers over the years with different stars that had stayed in the, the hotel, you know, the Michael Jacksons, the Billy Connollys of this world and, and, and all of that as well. So I was afraid it would get lost yeah. as part of the move. So I boxed it all up and I took it home to my own house for the two years while um, the hotel was closed and the renovations was happening. And then I brought it back in when the hotel the reopened. Hotel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was... Uh, so that was the, the archaeology side of stuff coming the, in. Yeah. The historian and yeah. me couldn't see it go. So yeah, it came back and it was, it was funny because... And then I suppose when we did start um, embracing social media and Twitter and Facebook to be able to go back into the archives and pull out stuff, you know, way back from the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s was really interesting to see. So we were very lucky with our, our throwback Tuesdays. We always had something to yeah, to post. Something to put up. Yeah. By the time 2006 came along when the hotel closed, had you been kind of promoted? Yes. So I suppose I started off being based um, in Cork um, and then the opportunity came to move to Dublin. So I took over as um, director of sales in Juries and Ballsbridge and the Towers. So that was a huge hotel. I mean, you're talking the, the guts of 500 Whoa. bedrooms from 180 in Cork. Um, so again, it was it was a fantastic opportunity to move up um, and to experience Dublin. Yeah. Um, and I suppose I would always have felt in Cork. You did have to work to get the business in. I yeah. mean, it's still the same today. Yeah. Whereas in Dublin, you were very much picking and choosing what type of business you would like for the hotel. Um, but also there was keener competition. You had a lot more hotels in the area, a lot more five star hotels and luxury hotels. So it it was a, another learning curve for me. Um, and I suppose that then allowed me to travel internationally. That was the start of it, really. Um, in promoting juries in the hotel group as well and, you know, attending a lot of the conferences and trade shows globally. So really exciting time from that perspective too um, and, and lots of learning. Very different hotel, huge hotel, lots more staff. Uh, but again, that camaraderie yeah. that, that exists in hotels of people having your back and, uh, you know, th there's nothing as, as good from a hotel perspective as when you have a conference or a big event comes in that you've been working on for a year and a half. 
and it all goes really well. Yeah. And the organisers come to you at the end and say, listen, thanks very much. Job well done. Everybody benefits from that. Um, so, yeah, so that was an, another interesting couple of years in my career. Dublin was, you know, it's an exciting place. I'd exciting place, well. yeah. yeah, a different kind of feel to to Cork. And um, as I say, I you know I'd have travelled to the US as part of that role into Europe, into the UK as well. So learning an awful lot about tourism and hospitality, not only in Ireland, where we can be a little bit insular sometimes, but you know, learning about trends that were happening across yeah. uh, the globe as well. So that was really exciting time. The American market and probably the UK market were the two big ones, were they at the time? They were, and Europe was was really starting to, to develop as well. I suppose at the time when I was in Dublin, you, you started to have that city break concept okay, really yeah. coming into play, um, not as much as it had been in the past. So you had a whole new demographic of young people who were coming into Dublin to yeah. have that three night stay. Yeah. Um, you know, had kind of the start of Temple Bar taking off and a, a lot of the, the other cultural institutions as well. And again, we were lucky we were near very close to the RGS and Lansdowne Road. So those big events, mm. again, it was slightly different. We would have hosted, you know, the post-rugby Six Nations dinner dances. We'd have had after the GA finals, etc. as well. So a lot of celebs, again, passing through, but a lot of work associated. You know, I think um, people probably, if you're not involved in the hospitality industry, you don't realise the amount of work that goes on in the background to deliver a big event as well. Um, so it always reminds me of, you know, when you watch those programmes of like the QE2 or something. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Behind the scenes. Um, so that was what it was like in, in Ballsbridge too. But I really enjoyed my time there and then decided that I wanted to come back to Cork. Um, so I um, was pregnant with my, my first son, who's now 22. Um, and just looking at, you know, the kind of the work and the travel and um, not having a support there, um, it became obvious very quickly that I needed to get home to my mommy yeah. and my daddy and yeah. the support group that was there. So it was great. It was a good time to to move back to Cork. Um, that was um, in 1999. And um, at the time, there was no role for me in juries. So I worked briefly with Fitzpatrick's Hotels in the Silver Springs. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, really interesting time there. As you know, it's Big hotel, big convention centre. Yeah. So winning a lot of that um, international business for the city as well. And the convention centre was kind of new at that stage, was very it? Very new, very and new. Even the idea of a convention centre, you know, you had the holiday shows and there was car shows. and It was, uh, yeah. yeah it was really a kind of a place that people in Cork went went to a lot. Really big events, you know, and you, you'd be hosting a lot of those corporate events, as you were saying, for, you know, 2,000 people. Mm. Um and they come themselves with with a lot of work yeah. associated with them. But um, it was it was a, again a great time. And I think when I came back, even though I was probably out of out of Cork for about two and a half three years, there was a different feeling when I came back to Cork. Yeah. Um, I think somewhat it was a good time when I when I left to move to Dublin because I really did feel Cork was that little bit insular and um, you know people knew everybody's business to a certain yeah. degree, and you you just didn't have that larger view of the world but actually after three years coming back and again I think a lot of that was as, as you said like you had a, a lot of multinational organizations a lot of new companies coming in and that as well bringing a slightly different view of the world and um, it was really good to come back to that yeah. and you started to see a number of the new bars and restaurants starting to develop too at that stage as well and I think people really understanding what Cork could be um, uh, so that was that was an exciting time to come back. Yeah, there was, uh, it was actually something that was brought up on the last last podcast with Stevie, uh, that idea of that a lot of people moved to Cork because it was this thriving place. There was job opportunities. As you said, the bars and restaurants, it felt like it was a great place to be. 
Yeah, it is. And um, I still think to this day, you know, we, we travel internationally. I think our tagline should be, and I know Seamus Heaney and others won't yeah. appreciate that, but it should be pleasantly surprised because yeah. I think a lot yeah. of people come to Quark um, particularly from internationally with, with no idea of what they're going to experience. Yeah. And then they just really like the vibe in Quark once they come. And um, that's a best kept secret and, and that's great. But I think, do think we need to do a lot more about getting out and, and making that message known internationally. And when you were promoting the likes of Silver Springs and then back again to, to juries overseas, did you have a problem kind of trying to explain where Cork was? Because I've often found that in particular in America, they know Blarney better than they know Cork. Yeah, I mean, Blarney was your starting point for a lot of conversations. Kinsale was another good one yeah. to hang your hat on. Yeah. Uh, people would would know of that um, internationally. Um, the Titanic, you know, again, would have been very well known internationally as well. Interesting enough, I, I spent um, some time in China. I did four or five trips to, to China with Tourism Ireland and... Um, I suppose Ireland wasn't even known in China at that yeah, stage. We yeah. were kind of the, the four leaders of getting out there and trying to spread the message. So they thought we were Iceland. Oh. So you spent a lot of your time explaining. No volcanoes. Well, exactly, no volcanoes and uh, slightly smaller island than Iceland. Uh, but if you mentioned you 2 or Riverdance, they were the two main things that people yeah. would, would understand. And then Titanic is huge in China. So if you mentioned Titanic, then you're, you're certainly in. They kind of started to understand the concept and again I suppose Quark being twinned with Shanghai did help as well and I think the whole idea of being a coastal uh, region um, is always very attractive no matter where you go in the world Um, but no certainly I think um, Quark has has very much started to get its name on that map Um, Mm. but I definitely think it continues to be pleasantly surprised as the tagline So you went back to juries. Did did you go back in as sales marketing director or what, what was Yeah, it? so I suppose titles were an interesting one over yeah. the years. So manager was a great title yeah. and then all of a sudden it became, oh my God, you have to be director. And yeah. then um, towards the end of my career in the last couple of years, if you weren't a VP, you were nobody, you know, vice president. So That's a very American <laughs> term though, isn't it? It is, yeah. it is. And I suppose a lot of, you know, terminology, particularly from a hotel's perspective and even trends comes via the States a lot of yeah. the time as well. Yeah. So, yeah, so I came back as director of sales and marketing. And at that stage, um, Jury's Inn in Cork had developed as well. So I had two hotels under my remit um, and that expanded then because uh, the inns were developed in Limerick and Galway. So they also were part of um, my remit then towards the, the latter end. So, I mean, yeah. it was closed for two years um, and the hotel that was, was going to be coming back in place was going to be very different. It didn't have the big ballroom. It mm. didn't have the big conference centre um, so the concept was going to be very different for the new juries that that developed um, at that stage um, but I think certainly it has firmly established its, its place back in the market as well and probably you know took a lot of the uh, trends that were happening internationally um, around you know the importance of the size of the bedroom again very fortunate to have a new hotel where you can put in the best of Wi-Fi and the yeah. best of connectivity um, and have a lot of different bars and restaurants and start using the outside space. I mean, if you consider it, the old hotel on the Western Road was a very long um, single story building, but actually none of the building looked out over the water, over the river. Oh. Um, all of it was internal yeah. um, and you did have a pool in the centre area. Yeah which when you consider back and it was an open air pool, it was very cool at the time. 
But I mean, you were from a sustainability perspective, That's you were great. heating yeah. <laughs> the air effectively. Yeah. Um, whereas with the new concept that's on site, um, as people know, there's a terrace wraps right around it. So people are able to view the river and sit out and enjoy it. Yeah. And I think that's for me has been really welcome for the city as well. We've seen buildings literally turn to the river instead of putting their back to the river. And that brings that element of a European feel to, mm. to Cork as well. And, you know, we have two channels in the river. We should be celebrating um, our riverfronts. Um, and that that's good to see that a lot of the developments, certainly in the last 10 years, have started to appreciate that a lot more. What happens to, to the staff in a hotel when they close for two years like that for refurbishment? Is it a case that it's kind of the end of an era for people or are they kind of put into juries in? Or I suppose we were fortunate at the time in that it was the end of an era for a number of the, the employees. I mean, they would have been, you know, 50s into 60s at that stage. So for a lot of them, it was an opportunity to to end their career a little bit earlier. Yeah. Um, and I would say juries and employer, you know, were, were, were very generous um, yeah. with, with employees um, at that stage. The concept initially was that they would try to keep the hotel running and develop the hotel, but it proved it, too I mean, difficult. it was going to be too difficult. Literally, the building had no foundation, so it would have been very difficult to build a new hotel on yeah. top of it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the day the decision had to be made to say we are actually closing the hotel was a really difficult one. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody was brought into the boardroom and told. But I suppose as as the days and weeks developed from there a lot of people felt it was yeah it's a good time for me to move on you also had an awful lot of other hotels developing in Cork at the time so they literally took every staff member we could you know you had their HR manager sitting in our lobby doing interviews because um, it was a really fantastic way of catchment to to take on really well trained people Um, so that worked out a number actually took the opportunity to travel which was fantastic and broadened the mind. And a lot of them have ended up coming back to Ireland and, and are really senior hoteliers now in, in this in, um, today. People just went yeah. th- their various ways. Um, but Probably it was, a lot of tears on the day it closed. Oh, it was. Well, we went to the, the, the ballroom, I suppose, was the big room. And, and I hadn't seen the room, you know, stripped effectively. Uh, I just walked in the door and I cried. James O'Sullivan, who, uh, you know, a, a dear businessman in Cork, he was so lovely. He just said, look, don't worry, I feel the same way. You yeah, know, there's yeah. so many good memories of the room. And uh, so, yeah, so that was my moment of, I suppose, saying goodbye to the old hotel. Um, but again, I, I know I've been fortunate, I suppose, the friends I made during that time are still very dear friends to me as well. And normally we'd meet up every year, but yeah. I suppose we haven't had the opportunity because of COVID, but I'm really looking forward to to getting to 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 meet all of those people again. So then it became exciting. The new hotel opened, a new name. A new name. What, yeah. what did people make of that when when you changed name? Well, um, I, I'm probably not telling tales out of school, but it was an interesting one because um, Juries as a brand um, had been sold, and um, a number of the hotels. So there was quite a few Juries Inns, as you can yeah. imagine, and uh, Juries Hotels. Um, so w- with any agreement, there was an 18 month period where why we could trade continuing to use the old name. But then after that, you'd have to stop. So Juries and Cork was the last to hand and literally down to the day of the 18 months before oh. we changed the name, because, again, it was the one um, that was held in fond affection. And of yeah. all the juries globally, it was it was the one that was probably the most difficult to rebrand. And, and the, the marketing team, you know, admitted that themselves as well. 
Um, so we had a false start. We had a, we were all ready to roll. We had branding, logos, the whole lot done with another name. And then 24, 48 hours before we were due to launch, um, it was pulled. And then the decision was made to run with the, the Riverley Hotel. So and why it, was the other name pulled? Because it sounded very um, facetious. So we've done a, quite a little bit of brand research on it and, yeah. and um, you know, out to test groups, etc. Um, probably not enough in Cork. Yeah. So the whole idea of us having notions, let's just oh, say, yes. came to light. Yeah. Um, so we decided, no, that's probably not the way to go. So we tested it on a few of our regulars um, and sent it? it out. It was the Cork Hotel. Oh, the Cork Hotel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's been a few hotels kind of called something like it after. We won't name names, but there's a few of them. No, exactly. So, yeah, so that, that, that was the feeling that, yeah, you had notions about you. And actually, it was interesting. Um, it was the first time as well, I suppose, that social media, you know, okay, 2006 probably wasn't, you know, wasn't fully implemented, but mm. it was the first conversations around... Um, PPC and you know uh, yeah. placement and all that kind of yeah. stuff. So being and the Google Cork, search and Google stuff like search, that. Yeah, being the Cork Hotel would have been a you know a difficult one to manage. So yeah. that was the first time I remember that conversation coming to light of thinking about social media and its influence and how it could yeah, impact you're competing the name. with every other hotel paying for a name like Cork. I mean, yeah. you're 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 competing against everything. Um. So yeah. So the River Lee seemed to be um, a better fit. I will admit, I had my own wedding um, at the hotel. You know, my family have had all their family events yeah. at the hotel over a number of years. We had our communions, our confirmations prior to me even working there. Yeah. Um, so it's still juries in my family yeah. after spending, you know, quarter of a million on, a wedding, exactly, yeah, on yeah. branding and website. Um, but yes, and but again, I, I put that down to fond affection yeah. more than anything else. And probably Cork people don't really like a lot of change too sometimes. There must be a massive marketing campaign though when you launch a new hotel like that with a brand new name like you must spend a lot on advertising you know again yeah the logos the staff merchandise everything, everything changes well everything changed as well because I suppose we opened and the recession kicked in quite course, soon yeah. afterwards as well around so, the same year was it Um, we were literally I'd say 10 or 11 months yeah. and the, the, the signs of it yeah. started coming through so that was a very interesting time because we would have started, um, you know, at, at a very different kind of luxury mm. hotel, a price point that was mm. a luxury five star hotel. Um, or was it a five star when it first opened? Well, we were we were moving towards five yeah. star at that stage. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, decisions had to be made. Yeah. It Was that the right fit? Mm. Um, was that where we wanted to, to go, uh, particularly looking at the, the economic downturn that was ahead of us as well? Um, but it was it was a very resilient time, and I put that down to again the people that were working in the hotel. Mm. Um, we turned it around very quickly. Um, we responded very quickly to the to the economy. Um, we had an incredibly loyal customer base who had stuck by us even though we were closed for two years. Mm. Um, but they were the first back in the door to support us, be it in the bar, the restaurant, be it the corporate companies using the bedrooms. For me, it was always a lesson in true partnership you know, to speaking to companies in Cork who, who were suffering as well, but knew that they didn't want to to start putting their employees who were, you know, as we could say, corporate warriors traveling um, into B&Bs or, you know, drop the, the service standard they'd have been used to. So um, we did a lot of, of strategic deals and partnerships, but it, it certainly paid off in, in the long term as well. And it meant that, again, you know, those moments you remember in time of, our, our general manager having to stand up and say, look, guys, I don't know what the next, 
you know, a few months spring. Mm. But um, if we can support and make sure that nobody loses their job over this um, downturn, you know, that'll be good. And to be able to stand 18 months later and say, yeah, we didn't, you know, we, we everybody kept their role, everybody kept their job. Some people decided, you know, to move on or to, to move back to, to home or whatever. But yeah, we managed to keep the, the show very much on the road and it was a real team effort at that stage as well. I'm guessing you had to go back on the road then and push a lot overseas to try and get tour groups, that type of travel yeah, back in. Yeah, it was. I mean, again, it's 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 interesting, I suppose. You, you do an element of that, but you, it's not about really having all your eggs in one basket. Mm. So we really had to plan for who would still be using hotels, what kind of travel would be there. And being very, I would suggest, creative we as as a team from a sales perspective really got out there and started understanding what projects potentially from a building construction perspective would be going on, you know, nice base business, long term business. Mm. And then just working with, with some clients that potentially didn't have the budget to stay in a hotel before, but, you know, that we, we could agree a price point that would work for them as well. So it was really being creative and looking at all aspects um of the business um and making sure that that we we fought for every piece of business that was coming into Cork at that stage. So again, we were very, very fortunate to have a lot of, you know, uh, I suppose, long tradition with sporting groups that were coming in, yeah. family events that still, you know, weddings still went on, christenings went on, etc. as well. Um, so for me, it was just being, as I say, sitting down with the team and saying, OK, so what can we do? And uh, no disrespect to marketeers, but I think at that stage, marketing had really become to the fore. I didn't even notice it when I moved to Dublin. Yeah. You know, that there was an idea that the business just walked in the door mm. um, and it really moved it back to sales and relationships and partnerships and being strategic from that perspective as well. And marketing absolutely played a part during the recession, but certainly not as much as as sales did. And for now, for me, it's interesting having the conversation during covid where it's slightly flipped at the moment, where, of course, you know, it is very much about marketing, getting yeah. your brand out there. Yeah. But sales is very important in the background as well to have have both um, operating together. And it's one of the rare industries that still kind of has sales and marketing together. You know, if you look at hospitality in, in the other industries are very split. Yes. You know, <laughs> sales do one thing mar- like marketing gets the leads for sales, but it's like you get the leads for yourselves. It is. Yeah. And I suppose I, I would have always... Um, welcomed that but I, you know I do understand as well I mean and certainly even uh, in my days um, when I was in my last number of years in hospitality I was global head of sales for, for Doyle Collection so I was managing a team of 48 globally oh. and it was interesting because you certainly saw um, and I think it's it's starting to happen in Ireland as well where people understood that marketing was an expertise and sales is also an expertise yeah, yeah. so people's roles split um, so you would have traditionally as you said a director of sales and marketing but certainly in the organisation in Doyle Collection it was separate so you had a director of sales and you had a director of marketing it brings interesting times as yeah. you know there's sometimes a little bit of conflict in both uh, in both areas and both roles but it certainly allowed for I would suggest where those roles were split or you, you had somebody who was specifically focused just on marketing we really saw the benefit of that as well. So certainly that's that's a trend that I would suggest will continue. And you, you can see a number of the hotels here in Cork have, have gone that route. Mm. And it's to the benefit, I would suggest, of, of a hotel as well. So that global team, how many hotels was, was were you looking so after? So in Doyle Collection at that stage, we had eight luxury hotels. So I suppose uh, Juries and, and Doyle um, uh, came together and then split and, and the Doyle Collection then was the, the four and five star 
luxury hotels within the portfolio. So we had at that stage Rivoli and Quark, um, the Westbury in Dublin, the Cook mm. Park Hotel in Dublin, um, Bristol, uh, very lovely Bristol Hotel, and then three hotels in, in London and one in Washington. So a bit of an eclectic mix yeah. and um, very different markets and very different locations as well. But again, I suppose when you think back on your learning curve in a career, it was the start for me of managing, you know, I'd always managed a large team, but predominantly um, based in the country where I was living. Yeah. Whereas now this was the, the start of managing a team globally. And then we'd have a lot of strategic partners as well, all the way through from Australia, um, into Europe and into Canada as well. So managing those relationships as well. So um, my day would start um, depending on, you know, calls 7 a.m. with Australia and work right the way through then to the West Coast of the US, finishing up at kind of 11 o'clock at night. But um, it was for me, I suppose, when you when you look back at it, there were so many and there are still so many um, people in Cork who are managing international teams. Yeah. You know, I would have known it from the airport because yeah. you would I'd have been flying out on the either the Sunday night or the Monday morning flight and coming back on the Thursday night and you'd meet pleasure of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to joke about the quirky throat. It was like a bus. You know, people had their favorite seats and yeah. you, you know them and you didn't have a lot of chat on the on the flight out on the Sunday night or the Monday morning. But on the Thursday night, everybody was kind of in a good mood going home to everything. Yeah. So you'd have the chat. So I was one of those. I was trying to manage a team um remotely yeah. um but then making sure that I was there physically as often as I could uh to support the team as well so again looking back in hindsight covid has has changed that um yeah. you know and and potentially I would suggest that somebody in the in the role that I would have been in won't need to travel half as much um yeah, could I'd imagine it's tiring anywhere. is it is it, it is tiring traveling it is tiring. And I suppose, again, it, you know, I was very fortunate. I got to stay in very lovely hotels yeah. um, internationally and uh, um, certainly as an employer, our collection was, was was very good and, and looked after me. But yeah, it would do. And I suppose a lot of the time that people don't see is is sitting at an airport, you know, flights being delayed, flights being cancelled. It does certainly take its toll. Um I would have been able to leave on the Cork Heathrow flight in the morning and be into our offices in 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 Marylebone, just off Oxford Street, for about nine thirty in the morning. It was easier for me to get to Cork to London than it was to Dublin, Whoa. um. So that made a huge difference that I wasn't having to get on a train, go to Dublin, fly into Dublin, back out again. It happened at some some occasions, but uh, again, Cork and Shannon were my two go tos, mm-hmm. just as airports to be able to get in and out of. But it certainly was important that um, you get into routine. Uh, I think, again, people are, are much more aware in the last 18 to 24 months about mental health yeah. and considering that and how sleep is very important. Yeah. And if you are in any way sleep deprived or jet lagged, you know, that that certainly starts to take yeah. its toll on you as well. So I can see that passion that you have for travel and tourism and you, you nearly spent the bones of three decades mm-hmm. in it. And then last year, <laughs> to my surprise, I see that you left the industry and you went into health. I did, yeah. It was a big pivot. It was a big pivot. No disrespect to the role I was doing, but I kind of felt I had done it for five years and I'd proven that I had done it. And there wasn't really another move. I mean, I'd been promoted. I was incredibly fortunate in my career in in the hotels that I'd been promoted five times. So not a lot of people can get to say that with the same employer you know throughout um, and to have that opportunity I mean hats off again that that goes back to the CEO 
that I worked with Pat King to, you know, allow me and, and give me that opportunity and have three kids and, yeah. um, a, you know, a, a life as well. But um, after the five years and I've kind of got to that age as well, where you start thinking, you know, what do I want to be when I grow? Yeah. And I'm still not 100 percent sure. And I suppose, again, there was an element of me even, you know, pre-COVID, which is interesting, saying, you know, is there something more that I can give back on? Um, I suppose I've always been somebody who's, you know, been involved in charities and all yeah. that kind of good stuff. But I felt, you know, my day job, is there something more that I could be doing? Um, and this came, again, very organically, a conversation um, with, with somebody here in Cork who knew me. And it was interesting because when we had the first conversation, I asked... Um, Noel, if I um, should bring a CV. And he said, what would you bring a CV for? I know you, <laughs> you know, yeah, this is kind of yeah. thing. Uh, and you forget, because I, I hadn't done an interview in, God, I mean, it was 25 or 26 years. Oh, yeah. So I was thinking, oh my Lord, do I have to go through this whole yeah. process? And um, we had a com- couple of conversations, you know, it was a big decision for me to make after so many years with the same company who are, you know, as I say, who I, I really loved the, the role I was in as well, but it just felt right. Mm. Um, and I think uh, as well, healthcare, there is that element of giving back in people as well. So it was a really good opportunity for me to go into an organization. So Cognitive Health is an occupational health provider. So it's a little bit of marrying both, really, to be honest, mm-hmm. because we work with corporate companies yeah. um, who are supporting their employees um, by providing with them medical and clinical assistance. Okay. Um, so when I went in um, in late 2020, as you can imagine, it was a slightly different world. We were kind of just starting to see the impact of COVID, but potentially those conversations were, um, you know, it'll be gone again in another few months, yeah. as we were all thinking. Last summer, we all, well, the summer go. previously, <laughs> 2020, we all yeah. thought, you know. Exactly. So, you know, it, it, it was, yeah, this is going to be around for another couple of months, but anyway, um, we'll get through it. So we were supporting organizations and employers who were um, aware that COVID was there and probably trying to reassure employees. But again, all thinking this is going to be gone in a couple of months time. So as we moved in then to 2021, um, it was a very different conversation we were having with with employers and having conversations with new employers who really always, I suppose, you know, wanted to support employees, but didn't understand the impact that COVID would have, not mm. just on your physical health, but your mental health as yeah, well. Yeah. Um, so 2021 has been a fascinating journey for me. I've had to learn an awful lot about um, the medical world. Yeah. Thankfully, I have a few medics in my family. So every sector has their lingo. So yeah. I would have used the hotel lingo all for, for the guts of 30 years and not even thought about it. And then I moved into the medical world and there's a whole lingo associated with that as well, which I've had to learn, but um, you know, enjoyed that learning curve as well. But certainly, and in that time as well, we've gone from an organisation with five employees to to sixty very soon. Yeah. So it's ramped up hugely during COVID. We've been trying to support our own employees, but also, as I say, working with some of the fantastic employers here in Ireland, but throughout our throughout the UK and Ireland as well, um, to understand how they can support a very different. Um, employee working environment between working from home, still having a number who are in an office or factory or plant space, um, and then a hybrid working model as well. So I think a lot of organisations, particularly now as we move into 2022, are just starting to say, okay, so this is going to be the norm. Yeah. So now let's start planning based on it being the norm, not that we're just planning for a short period of time. And the 60 employees you have, are they 
clinicians or, or like how does that work? We have the office space now already for when we can get everybody back in the yeah, office, yeah. Um, which is which is great. Um, and um, we would then uh, provide um, our clinical staff here in Cork, but also then we have a network of doctors throughout Ireland mm. that work with us as well. Um, and then we have doctors and nurses who work on site on our behalf as well. So a lot of the large FDI multinational companies who I will not mention. Yeah, yeah. Um, we provide the occupational health on site between um, nurses and doctors on, on their sites as well. And do you support companies via email, telephone and stuff as well? Or, or is it all on site? No. So it's been really interesting. I suppose if um, you'd spoken to, to Cognit two years ago, 99% of the initial consultations would have been face to face. Yeah. Now that's um, closer to uh, at the peak, it was 75% of our being offered online mm. or virtually. Um, it'll probably end up, we would, we would forecast about 50, yeah. 50. Um, as you can imagine, there's, there's certain consultations that have to happen face to face because um, there's the laying of hands that they would yeah. say on somebody, but um, a huge proportion of our initial consultations and assessments at the moment are related to mental health, stress and anxiety. Yeah. Um, so again, um, lots of the times it's actually more reassuring for a client to have that happen virtually and, and they're sitting in the comfort of their own home. Yes. So we found that um, offering the virtual consultations has been fantastic and we're getting really great feedback. So I think that's something as well that's going to continue post-COVID is that we really look at how we deliver um, our services um, in the right way. Are you trying to change the perception around medicine with with corporate world? Because in the past, I would I would have always associated with, you know, someone's coming in to do a medical they're there to see are you fit for the job. Whereas now, maybe are you trying to say we're actually going to try and help the person? We're trying to going to help your staff, which will help productivity, things like that. Hugely. Um. Again, I suppose it's it's interesting when you look at occupational health and where it came from. So, um, when you look at foreign companies, multinationals here in mm. Cork, many of them brought so much like pension schemes. Yeah. You know, um, kind of uh, concept of health and safety, which would have never existed before. Um, and looking at, at the health of their employees as well. Now, a lot of it initially was driven by risk assessment. So mm. it was, you know, it would be traditional manufacturing worried about that, you know, somebody could lose an arm or a leg or an eye, yeah. etc. So that's where occupational health really began. Um, and that's probably where its its infancy came in Ireland, particularly with multinationals bringing it into Ireland. But then it has very much evolved in the last number of years. And I would always say that... Um, I'm probably very fortunate um, in my own family from a from a personal perspective. My father worked was one of the first employees in Pfizer and Ring of Skiddy, oh, so yeah. over fifty three years ago now. Um, and when my father started, they had an on site nurse and doctor, and my father visited the nurse and um, wasn't feeling great. And she said, "Look, I really think you need to get that looked at." Yeah. Um, and he ended up um, in an operation. Um, he had a form of cancer. And it would have been 50-50 if he had left it yeah. any longer. So I, I think it's ironic now I'm working for an occupational health provider when my father probably wouldn't maybe have been around if there wasn't That's an occupational health yeah. provider in Pfizer yeah. at the time. So, you know, hats off to organisations like that. So you know, that was the, the traditional model, but certainly it has moved on. And I think hopefully COVID has allowed that conversation mm. to move on as well. I mean, again, people are being a lot more open about mental health, I would yeah. suggest, in the last 18 months. And employers are, are truly trying to support. It's hard. I mean, you know, it, it's very hard to know what the right thing to do a lot of the time yeah. is as well. 
most organizations will do, as you mentioned, a pre-employment. So they'll do a view of you coming in, how healthy are you coming into the organization. You potentially then have an annual health checkup, just again, looking at how you are. Um, and then it can go the right the way through. Then, then if you if you require clinical medical intervention um, at some stage during your your career, and then an exit interview as well from a medical perspective as well. So you get a whole gamut of information during an employee's tenure with you um, as to how healthy they've been, what has caused them stress or anxiety, and you're kind of getting an indication as well of the w- workforce overall. Yeah, are they seeing trends then yes. within their staff? And we maybe need to fix something here because three or four people are doing the same thing. That's exactly Problems it. or whatever it is. Yeah, and uh, certainly COVID has, we've seen that come through. So those in the front line or those that maybe in a customer service type yeah. role um, are experiencing a lot of mental health stress and anxiety because yeah. they are the front line. They're yeah. getting it day in, day in, day out. So, you know, good organisations, what we're seeing are, are taking information from us, taking guidance um, and looking at that information and then providing guidance as to what you should or should not mm-hmm. potentially be doing as well. So we're supporting a lot of organizations um, who want to do the right thing um, and want to be able to support their employees as well through that. And then, of course, as we are at the moment, lots of people who are picking up COVID, unfortunately. So, again, how do you support um, an employee who's at home, may not have the support of a family to support them during their, their days of isolation or stuff like that as well? And, you know, we can have a nurse on a call with them just yeah. to tell them, you know, it'll be fine. This yeah. is what you need to do, et cetera, as well. So that reassurance. And as CEO, how are you finding building that brand? Because it is still a young brand. How are you building it during, I suppose, all these lockdowns? And, you know, you can't you can't host a conference or anything no. like that, which which I'd imagine would have been something that you, you could have done. Yes. In a normal world. It would be. And um, again, for me, it's very interesting coming from a luxury hotel brand and looking at the way that you would traditionally go about marketing um, to your customer there versus yeah. where we are at the moment, because we are very much a B2B yeah. organization now versus um, B2C. Um, so just looking at the social media channels we use. So we've really much focused on LinkedIn and Twitter, yeah. um, which wasn't something that, that Cognite would have done uh, prior to me joining. We've been incredibly fortunate. We've had an amazing intern from MTU join us and oh, she has done a phenomenal job. And our second intern from MTU started as of yesterday. So he has uh, has a a lot uh, to do as well, uh, which is great. But again, they've brought that enthusiasm in and probably viewing um, occupational health in a very different manner, which Mm. is good from, you know, from the traditional aspect, how you would look at it. Um, So we've concentrated on that. We have our new website being launched next week. So again, looking at it from being more customer centric, user friendly versus just there as an information um, delivery. And also, I suppose a lot of the time what we've been really trying to concentrate as well is our internal brand. So uh, looking at our employee brand, which we're just about to to launch as well. Um, So we've been looking at it from from various different um, fronts as well. Um, And again, you know, occupational health is quite traditional. Um, so we feel there's an opportunity there to come at it in a slightly different way. Now, I'm trying to, the guys are trying to convince me at the moment, my interns, that we should start going on Instagram. Can't quite see that yet. Yeah. yeah. But let's see, or TikTok. Yeah. Let's see how we might be able Maybe to deliver. Maybe a step too far at the moment. But but who is your typical customer? Is it a HR professional or is it a... It know? could be anybody because um, the one thing about occupational health, it sits in various different roles and remits mm. and organizations. So yes, HR traditionally would have, but a lot of, Large organizations would have a health and safety um, manager um, okay. or director in the organization as well. 
Um, so it it's various different um, people. And again, I suppose one thing that I've really um, tried to to bring my expertise on is the delivery of different services. So mm. um, traditionally, occupational health will be looked at. It's all based on, you know, a clinical assessment. But actually, when you look at it, there are various different services that can be offered to various different clients in very different ways. So last week, we just launched our an aviation medical program. So uh, traditionally, um, not a number of organizations here in Cork offering a- aviation medicals. And as you can imagine, there's uh, a number of pilots who haven't been flying recently, so they have yeah. to go back and do their medicals as well at the moment. But um, the next area we're looking at is the um, marine um, assessments and marine um, medicals. Yeah. So that's a whole area as well that, that we're going to go into too. Um, but then that general um, health surveillance, that they would call it. So that yearly checkup yeah. that a number of organizations would offer. Um, that has fallen by the wayside a little bit in organizations because they just haven't been able to offer it during mm. COVID. But again, we think there's a way of offering that in a slightly alternative way um, post-COVID that um, will allow you to offer an element of it virtually and then offer an element of it um, face-to-face as well. So it's about really looking at, for me, the services we provide in a slightly different manner and making them more customer-friendly yeah. versus people thinking, oh, it's, you know, you only come to occupational health if you're sick and your employer yeah. wants you to go um, and visit a doctor. It's it's a very different um, concept now than it would have been a couple of years ago. And it's probably a difficult one in terms of when you're promoting. So you said LinkedIn, Twitter, you can't really use client testimonials no. because it's it's health. That's so exactly you probably it. have to just look at your own services and what you can bring to the table. We can. And also, I suppose, again, our our client base, um, rightly or so, um, are a lot of very large organizations who don't want yeah. um, us to be using information as well. And, and we wouldn't. I mean, there's mm. a huge GDPR and data mm. aspect um, of uh, occupational health, too. But I think you can speak to trends. Yeah. Um, and we've started to do that. Um, we are a strategic partner with Leia Healthcare. Um, and Leia have been... Uh, leaders, I would suggest, in going out and um, providing data and, you know, the Brave New Era. So it's the annual survey, survey they do on behalf of um, employers and employees. And that's been really welcome during COVID. It's given some really good information. And we started doing that ourselves as well. But again, quite a lot of what we can deliver is case studies. Yeah. Explaining to organizations, look, here's where we've gone into an organization. Here's the work we've done. Here's where we've worked um, as a partner with you to to support mental health or um, other aspects. And actually what we've been able to prove um, in the last year is that occupation health, when delivered correctly, saves an organisation money and saves employers money. It's not an additional cost. It can actually work to your benefit. And particularly when you're looking at, you know, the great resignation and staff recruitment and retention, if you're a good employer who's looking after your employees, and particularly if you look at the public health service at the moment yeah. and, and the pressure that's under Massive. you know we've been told that for some of the mental health assessments and again it's absolutely no disrespect to the people working in the public sector they're doing a phenomenal job but there's a two and a half year wait list for some yeah. assessments yeah. and again you know as as an employer you don't want an employee to be sitting there for two and a half years waiting to get an no. assessment so a number of, of organizations there have stepped up to the mark and we brought a new service the mental health assessment service to the market um, in 2021 and we're looking at even revamping that for 2022 as well. So, again, it's um, telling that story um, without um, using anybody's specific name, et cetera, as well. So that's where you have good marketing interns, you know, who can who can turn their hand to anything. You're going through all this 
setting up, you know, all these different roles and you're becoming, you know, CEO of a brand new company and you also take over the, the reins as president of, of the chamber. So tell me about that. When did that start? Um, I'm in my third year. So generally, traditionally, um, a president does a two year stint, but mine has been extended slightly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it would have been 2019. And um, again, I suppose I was vice president uh, for a year before that. Mm. But actually, I was involved in court chamber um, 24 years ago. Cool. That's how long. Um, and when did I you went stay in, involved in all of that uh, time? Dipping or in, in and out. out yeah. Dipping in and out. I suppose my, my initial, again, I'm... I'm Sometimes the irony of things, it was when I started with um, IRG Duhallow, I remember, and my offices were Newmarket and I used to, um, I was in, invited by the then president, John Cashel, to become involved in a kind of a young um, leaders group. So it would have been specifically designed around um, kind of transition year students, yeah. which didn't really exist at that stage. So my job was to go out and um, help them start up many companies. And um, a lot of that, again, was, you know, late at night out in a secondary school somewhere yeah. in Charleville or Mitchellstown and meeting the groups and then speaking to them. But um, it was I really enjoyed it. And it was the start, as I say, of that young entrepreneur type concept, I suppose, in, in secondary schools. Um, so that's how I started. Um, and then I was involved in various different subcommittees, particularly from a tourism perspective yeah. with, with Court Chamber. And then I was invited to become a member of the board. Um, I went forward for election uh, and I was very uh, thankfully successful. And so I suppose I was one of the the first in kind of hotels um, there. Um, and then I was asked um, to become president. So it, it certainly wasn't in my plan, um, particularly as I was traveling a huge amount mm. at that stage. I was I was away and, and, and traveling every week, but um, it uh, seemed like an opportunity not to miss. So I was very fortunate. I took over in, as I say, 2019. So we were celebrating the 200th anniversary of Cork Chamber that year. Yeah, It was a big year and it was, you know, uh, pre-COVID. Thankfully, most events happened and, uh, you know, we, we were able to celebrate. We had a really fantastic event for the 200th anniversary. We got as many of the presidents that were still alive as possible in a room and that was really welcome. Um, and then 2020, it all kind of went a little bit pear-shaped and went yeah. online. <laughs> and how have the Chamber found that transition? Because it must be difficult. Because if one thing the Chamber is known for, it's that networking face-to-face, -face, the coffee, people kind of meeting each other. Yeah, it, it, it certainly was a challenge. Like for most organisations, mm -hmm. I suppose, initially, the, the challenge was the, the team is, is a, a team of uh, 13 and yeah. um, just allowing them to work from home very quickly, like every organization yeah. did and making sure that uh, everybody had that connectivity. Um, and again, I suppose at that time, I remember being in the room when we, you know, said, OK, so guys, we're probably going to have to run a few virtual events. How yeah. do we do this? Not thinking. We were thinking, you know, three to six months yeah. planning, not uh, that we'd be still here in 2022. Um, so that was the original concept. And I suppose the last um, event, the big event we had, ironically enough, was our February um, chamber uh, annual dinner for yeah. a thousand people um, in City Hall. So the biggest event that we host every year. And on that night, you had Michal Martin, Simon Coveney, everybody sitting in the room. And it was the eve of the general election. So, you know, yes. there was a lot of excitement in the room and people yeah. wondering what's to come. But I mean, nobody, nobody in that room had any indication no. what was going to happen within six to eight weeks. In hindsight, Thankfully, we got to have it that year yeah. and, you know, people got together. 
Um, but then, yeah, we had to plan from there um, to move online and to move virtually. And I think we did it uh, really effectively. And I suppose, again, the great thing about the Chamber is that we have incredible support from the Chamber membership um, and a number, as you know, are um, public relations companies, marketing yeah. companies who gave their feedback straight away and said, look, I, I suggest you do this. I suggest you do that. Yeah. And uh, a number of um, the events that we run moved really well online, um, like the business breakfasts, yeah. uh, you know, and we're already having that conversation to say, will we move back to the traditional face to face breakfast if the opportunity comes? Or is this a really good way of, of delivering yeah. our services um, and a number of other events as well? But I do think the more we talk about it, the more people are craving that event, that yeah. dinner, that lunch, that just that meet up. It's been great to be able to facilitate and and thankfully um, we've increased our membership during COVID. So I think people really see the value of yeah. an organisation like, like Cork Chamber. I think we've been very vocal um, with regard to lobbying on behalf of Cork generally during COVID. Yeah. Um, so we've been able to really keep our members up to speed on changes in PUP payments, changes in what's going on in different departments, what's coming down the track to mm. support and, and being that kind of one-stop shop. And that's really important. And I think that's what a chamber should be about. But again, as I say, I think 2022, even as I was coming in to, to meet you today, I met somebody on, on on the way in who was saying, when do you think we'll have a chamber event face-to-face yeah. again? Yeah. You know, that's Cork. Yeah. People just want to get together in a room and have a bit of a chat and uh, catch up as well. And I think we all earn, we all earned it at the end of COVID to have that face-to-face event. And the Chamber is such a mix of businesses from very small to the, to the largest corporations in the world that are based here in Cork. There's something magic about that as well. Isn't there it? is. Um, and I think it's the accessibility of business. So yeah. I'm always intrigued, say, the night, as I say, the, the Chamber dinner is an example where you have the owner, one-stop shop, right the way through, as you say, to the, you know, the, the senior leaders in, in our multinational companies and they're all enjoying each other's company on the night and celebrating the success. And I think, again, that's something for me that's um, been um, unfortunate to a certain degree is that we've had so many fantastic announcements out of Cork in the last mm. 18 months. And in general, you'd be in a room and you'd be able to celebrate that. And, you know, they've done incredibly well. They've been on social media, etc., but it's not the same uh, as really just getting to pat somebody on the back and say, job well done. But we've had so much that we could we could celebrate. New announcements of companies, award winning organisations, strategic partnerships coming out of Cork. Um, and I think we, we shouldn't forget that as well. And that's from the smallest organisation yeah. we work through right to the biggie ones as well. And again, for me, uh, when you hear, you know, the company of the year is part of, of the awards that we do as part of the, the chamber dinner and that's moved virtually online. But for me, over the last number of years, to hear those stories of the small two to three man organization that is now taking the world by storm yeah. 18 months later. Um, so that's that's really welcome. And that's um, I think multinationals, particularly when you talk to them, um, they would always say that about coming to Cork to set up once they've made the decision to come to Cork. It's a really fantastic city to establish your business because we actually all do work together. And if somebody can't support them, they'll refer them to somebody else who can support them. Um, so, yeah, it's it's been an, an interesting, it's it's certainly not been, I don't think, the presidency that any other president had. Yeah. But um, would I change anything? Absolutely not. Because, again, it's it's those good news stories probably have helped me personally through COVID. Yeah. You know, you're, you're aware, particularly in this role of lots of great things that are happening. Um, and that 
definitely has has um, cheered me up no end at different times during COVID. So finally, I have two questions for you, Paula. I ask people every week. Uh, the first one is, what tip would you give uh, another business to build a brand? I think it's important, um, and I'm sure many people have said this to you as well, is to be authentic when yeah. you're building your brand. There is no point in going out there and spending lots of money on very fancy logos and very fancy research if it's not what your company is about. Yeah. Um, and to ensure that you um, support your brand. Your brand for me is a little bit like um, um, a plant or a flower or something like that, you know. Yeah. You can't just throw it out there and think no. that that's going to grow. Yeah. You actually, it has to be a living thing. Yeah. Um, and you as an organization have to embody it. Um, and I'm learning that, I must admit, at the moment as I try to develop the Cognate brand. I mean, I would have thought the brand was about the external brand, but yeah. actually I've learned in the last year that the internal brand is probably more important and then you can really work on your external brand as well. Um, so that for me is, is is crucial. And the other question I have is what tip would you give an individual? And in your case, I'd be very interested to find out what tip would you give in relation to sales because it's often seen as this kind of job. It's a cold calling type of job where it's tough. But from what I gather from you, it wasn't that at all, you know, that you, you know, you got a lot back from it. Yeah. And I, I suppose I'm um, traditionally I am interested in people. I think yeah. that helps. I actually, um, you know, when you go on, on sales training, they'll always say it's um, 70 percent listening, 30 percent talking. Yeah. And I, there is an awful lot to be said for that. Um, I'm actually really interested and fascinated to learn from clients. And I think it's it's listening to them. Yeah. But again, being straight up with a client or a customer and building that relationship um, is very, very important. So I think sales is um, it's a fascinating world to get involved in. And I have seen people who never thought that be salespeople. I mean, I was always in the hotel industry poaching from somebody who might be in operations on the floor, et cetera, yeah. and saying, look, that person is going to make a great salesperson. I think you can see it in somebody yeah. um, and then developing that talent in them as well. So, you know. Don't be frightened of sales. And I do think sometimes sales um, is seen as kind of the the poor relation nowadays. Yeah. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, like you, you need marketing and sales to work together very yeah. effectively. And when that happens, then you see the best of people and the best of brands and you actually start seeing commercially money being made as well. And has it helped you, I suppose, in terms of you've got to get into roles where you manage teams? Do you think that that, eventually led to you becoming the CEO of, of Cognitive Health? I think so. I think, again, for me, I've been very fortunate in my career that things have come my way yeah. to a certain degree. But people have been a huge part of that. But people who had my back or people who'd, you know, uh, particularly in organisations like, as I said, Jury starting off my career or even with the chamber who'd kind of take you aside and say, you know, I suggest you do it this way or that way as well. Yeah. And that that's constructive criticism is incredibly important to anybody yeah. um, developing their career. And I hope I provide that to my own team nowadays. And, and particularly, as I say, I'm really excited to see four new interns starting this week Brilliant. and starting their career. And I'm really looking forward to seeing them develop their career as well. And there's very interesting times ahead. Hopefully, uh, we'll, we'll get to meet plenty of people at a, at a chamber ball sometime this year. Fingers crossed. Um, but it's been fantastic talking to you, Paula. It's been a fascinating career and it's definitely not over. 
and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing where Cognia Health goes in the next couple of years. And certainly, and I'm so looking forward to see where 24 Stories goes as well in the next while. So congratulations to you too. And I cannot wait that we have a night out and can enjoy it all and celebrate it all. Looking forward to it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the 24 Stories podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and get in touch with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn at 24 Stories Tribe. I'll be back next week with a brand new guest.